What am I doing here? Hi everyone. Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everyone, this is Dave and you are listening to Living the Dream. Uh, This is another small episode I want to record in a series, I guess, (laughs) should be called Life and Politics in the Time of COVID-19. And I think most of the shows I'm going to do in the next little while will probably be focused on um, COVID-19. And I think particularly, you know, look, I'm not uh, I'm not a science person. I could even just forgot of the word, what I'm looking for, epidemiologist. Um, so I have really nothing to say about the nature of the virus or how the, the virus should be treated or what states should be doing or what government should be doing. But I guess really what my um, interest is, is trying to work out well, a something useful to do, and that that'll be part of the theme. I think that we'll be kind of digging in in this episode and in other episodes. It's just me today, uh, but hopefully I'll have some other people involved in the future. John really wants to participate, but as the father of a four or maybe even five month old now and another kid, and working from home and a partner and all those kind of things, his times is a little bit uh, taken up. But I'll try to uh, strong hum um, him into more stuff. But really, I guess we'll. You know, trying to provide analysis of, of what is happening, but also trying to work out what is a useful way to act. And I really feel that that's probably the question that I've been struggling with for about 20 years since the end of the ultra-globalisation movement has been what is a useful way to act, being fairly convinced that the paths of capital A activism and um, what we would, you know, electoral politics are limited at best. And this is all coming to, into sharp relief at the moment. I guess to what I wanted to do today was um, talk about what I think are the big themes going forwards. I want to have a bit of a one-person reading session looking at a very interesting article in The Australian, of all places, called Conventional Capitalism is Dying, which is a summary of reports coming out of uh, Macquarie Wealth Management, part of the Macquarie Bank Group, uh, detailing how capitalism over and communism's on the way. Yaha! And then I wanted to kind of wrestle with uh, the latest developments in the Reserve Bank of Australia stimulus plan, which is probably enough for today. So maybe to start with, just to say that I think I'm probably going through the same affective um, experience that a lot of us are going through, which is one of uh, mainly one of fear and panic and tension. Um, maybe it's misplaced. Um, maybe COVID-19 is not what it seems to be. Maybe it'll be worse. I think the kind of... Um, there's something about a virus, there's something about how this is playing out that causes us to create kind of a strange, affective state of kind of tense panic. You know, I'm in this place at the moment where I'm, every night I'm like, well, I should probably, you know, make sure my immune system's doing okay, I should go to bed early. Then I stay up for another hour and a half, like, scrolling through articles that leave me more confused about what the virus is, what the projections are, what the state should be doing, and the like, just in that kind of situation. Um, But also, on the other side, there's kind of strange positives that are emerging from the situation. I think a lot of us that can work from home are kind of, or even can't work for home, are kind of looking forward to isolation uh, with a self-distancing or a total lockdown as a strange way of breathing out from a life that is tense and weird. And this seems to fit in with um, points that have come out from you know some of the original kind of analysis and commentary about what was happening in Wuhan and other parts of China where everything shut down, people kind of suddenly asking like, well, what do we want to turn back on? Or the reports recently about dolphins returning to to um, the rivers of the the uh, waters of Venice and it's just first time you can see fish and the global pollution tallies are down. Now, of course, at this moment we won't get to choose. 
Uh, what should we turn back on? It's capital and the state that will determine those things. But the raising of these questions, the learning of what is important, um, seems to be a, and also just stopping, stopping these these processes that make us insane and sick. Um, uh, that seems to me pretty important. I'm not sure if you can hear the car alarm going off in the background, but I wonder if that gives the episode like a, a strange kind of gravitas. It's really hard to tell what we are facing. You know, I think the most positive side we're looking at is a global pandemic that kills a considerable amount of people. Though, of course, we can pull out all the numbers and talk about how many people are dying every day and whatever, but a considerable amount of people. Then, as I talked about in the previous episode, um, puts the pressures on an already faltering world system of capitalism and hurls it into recession and depression. To the worst extreme, where the combination of the illness... Uh, and, and in that first example, I think the thing that people are focusing on is that the increased number of people that will be going into healthcare systems will put pressures on already stressed healthcare systems so that they can neither treat the COVID-19 patients effectively or other patients, and this will then uh, push up the mortality rate. To the other extreme, which is the level of the sickness will be so intense, the level of the economic disruption will be so intense that the commodity chains that hold together our ability to recreate daily life on a daily basis and the instant you know the kind of infrastructural network that holds daily life together will break down and that the social will no longer be possible and this is a you know obviously the nightmare fantasy that uh, we are culturally obsessed with uh, at the moment, you know, in terms of disaster movies, that that something happens and everything breaks down, and I guess that's the kind of range of possibilities that we look at. You know, I guess those of you that are probably a bit more kind of Zizekian out there, it might be worth thinking about, like, well, why is it that our society produces this fantasy of complete breakdown, of apocalypse? What, what is it? Because, you know, I guess the kind of Zizek's point is always that um, you know, taking Lacan from the individual to the social, that our fantasies, whether they be positive or horrific ones, always express something about the society that generate them some kind of blockage some kind of point in the symbolic order that cannot be confronted directly and therefore requires this fantasy so it'd be probably maybe we could do a future episode about you know the psychoanalysis of the social fantasy of of apocalypse about what what that says but what is kind of actually interesting is as opposed to total breakdown what we are seeing rather is the mass or the stepping in of the state. It is not like this crisis is undermining the state's capacity to act. If anything, around the world we are seeing states acting. And we're seeing a considerable variation um, in how the state is actually acting. So we have the kind of, I guess, you know, success stories. China, Taiwan, Japan, uh, Singapore, South Korea where all those states seem to have um, been able to stop the spread of COVID-19, um, uh, carry out considerable health care, and now it seems like, you know, that uh, it's past its peak. All of those states, interestingly, seem to have taken v different approaches. It's not like they've all had the one-size-all, one-size-fits-all kind of approach, which I think those of you know, the kind of Orientalist answer out there that this can be explained um, by some reference to Asian values, you know, that kind of bugbear of the Western imagination doesn't really hold ground here. I would say, you know, and this is kind of bullshit hot take, what is interesting is um, all those states are at some level 
you know, versions of the Asian development state, all those states have gone through or were versions of the Asian development state. And all those states have encountered kind of uh, um, uh, respiratory, you know, flu-like pandemics of certain lights before. And then you have the disaster responses, the United States, um, the United Kingdom, Italy, and perhaps Australia. So we see a considerable variation. It's not just it's like a technical question. It's not like it's just a, a fait accompli um, in terms of this virus hits a nation, therefore it looks like this. It's not like it's just determined whether it will be kind of the lower impact or the more intense impact. It seems that societies have the capacity to make choices, which of course you know really gets to the fucking nub of the issue is who gets to participate in the making of those choices particularly because how can you have well two things right you know i think that i just echo what i just said minutes ago you know i think that since the end of the ultra globalization movement since the defeat of the anti-war movement the question of like what is meaningful collective action in australian society is an open question that no one has been able to develop a successful answer for. That's even more intensified if we have to engage in in um, self-isolation, some kind of social distancing or a lockdown. Like, how can you have politics without a public sphere? You know, if if the core part of what it means um, and what is the basis of of a radical politics is the crowd in the street, the mass on the picket line, that this is the ca- this is you know in the very marrow. If we can't meet, how how does that behave? And so, who then gets to determine how the state acts? With the state being you know it's act you know being with acting being very crucial. And interestingly enough, kind of what we now have is a position from you know and i i don't mean to be trite or contrarian about this but it does seem pretty clear that um what everyone is calling for in inverted commas is increased state action that the state should intervene more to carry out a regime of testing to um enforce isolation that's pretty interesting, right? Like, and I know there's been a philosophical debate online, which we might talk about in, in, um, in future episodes, where Giorgio Agamben, you know, the philosopher of the state of exception, says this is the state of exception writ, writ large, right? That's what's going on here. And people are going, what are you talking about, Agamben? People are dying. This is what's necessary. But it really, you know, it really is getting to this issue of, like, how to act. And on the other side of that, we see the commons, right? So we see the, um, the eruption of, of, of mutual aid and, and solidarity. And I know that there's been you know, a number of declared mutual aid uh, organisations, you know, just in Australia, springing up in, in every city. But I think that's only a small picture because that just reflects people who are already in largely capital A activist world with a, a certain language formalising a group. I think what you'll find is that the spontaneous kind of um, response here is much larger than this. You know, for example, Max, my, my son, my younger son, his childcare has already set up a food collection pro, um, project aimed at delivering food to um, elderly, infirm people who can't leave the house in, in our suburb, right? And I don't think that's just kind of some corporate move. That's like the workers in that place using that place of work and their existing networks to do that. Now, I think one of the challenges for the mutual aid groups will be how can they respond, how can they relate to the community groups, right? How can they relate to the workplace groups? Like, will they be able to escape the language and processes of of activist circles to be engaged in those more meaningful um, spaces? So the state and the commons, a range of action, uh, a range of possibilities that can that are open for us but how to act you know that, that that's the real the challenge and I, I hopefully i'll i want to get more people on in coming weeks to talk about the state you know are we suddenly is the anarchist critique critique over is the state back like what does this mean about all those analyses about globalization so empire theses that i think are correct about the state must be understood within a, a broader world system how do we get that um who's making statements who's attempting to do to do things 
you know, and, and and interrogate those as part of not you know as part of helping us come together and and work out how to communicate, particularly if we're in isolation, right? And I, I'm always worried about that. I'm just like throwing out more content content into uh, you know the content mill, and I don't really want to do that. I really hope that I can add to something, you know, to do something a bit different. But maybe that's just arrogance. Who will see? So the overall issues that come out of that, I think, that are worth thinking about are kind of those, you know, questions of what's the relationship between the production of pandemics and the world system to get a grip on um, what the impact of this will actually be. So beyond the fear, try to as much as possible really say, well, what is happening? You know, what is breaking down? What is not breaking down? What is going on? to get an understanding about how bad the economic crisis um, is going to be and also to think about what will come out of it. Because if, if what is happening is not determined, then what comes next is also not determined. And, may, and it's not, it, which could be better or, or worse. And so like that's, I guess, a kind of a bit of an introduction to kind of contribute to that analysis today, I wanted to do like a, a bit of um, a reading series to start with. And so friend of the show and good friend of me, Nick, uh, passed on an article to me that was in The Australian um, with the headline, Conventional Capitalism is Dying, Macquarie Wealth. Macquarie Bank's wealth analysis flags major changes in the way economics function. And so what this article does is it summarises a number of notes that have been sent to investors on this Wednesday from uh, the Macquarie Wealth Management, which is part of the Macquarie Group. Interestingly enough, what it does is it kind of identifies um, the list of various forms of state intervention that are are going on and then makes some general comments about... um, the, the state intervention represents a broader transformation that is going on in capitalism. So it lists all the different things, you know, what the European Central Bank is doing, you know, what Trump is doing, the, or the kind of the... And it's quite incredible. So a direct quote is, we've been arguing that conventional capitalism is dying, or at least mutating into something that will be a closer version of communism. Incredible. There's a number of claims that it makes here. So it says basically that these changes mean that economics, as it's understood, no longer works. I might just read a large section, so um, let's go for it. Today's economic and investment strategies are built around a concept of, of a monetary world and the ultimate primacy of the private sector and its ability to navigate well-defined business and capital market cycles. Alas, the world has already moved far away from these principles. Macquarie said the bedrock features of economic and financial analysis, such as leading indicators, the Federal Reserve model, the Phillips curve of labour and inflation analysis, risk premiums were no longer useful as the world was now flooded with three to five times more money and debt than gross domestic product. We are drowning in capital and the objective is no longer effective utilisation, but rather ensuring that it does not freeze and remain liquid, Macquarie said. Also, role of labour and conventional versus digital capital is being drastically altered, while a generational change drives far greater preference for fairness and support rather than freedom and choice. Even if theoretical policy answers are right, they will be rejected. Modern monetary theory, which has gained prominence in the United States by advocates such as Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, argues that unemployment is the result of government spending too little while at the same time collecting taxes. Instead, government should spend to subsidise wages and embark on national programs while raising taxes on income to keep inflation lower if needed. Part of the theory could include a universal basic income in which every citizen, regardless of work or wealth, would recognise a set stipend from the government. One of the more frequent questions that clients ask, what are other historical periods we can look at to better understand our path, Macquarie Wealth said. And this is a direct quote. Unlike natural sciences, economic rules are not immutable, but rather bend under pressures that society face. What is regarded as acceptable in one era, era is disregarded in another 
and therefore prescriptions from one period will remain unacceptable in another, even though some might actually yield more efficient outcomes. Unlike physics, economics does not progress according to well-known rules, but rather attempts to satisfy prevailing societal moods. Homo economicus is not a rational agent, but a confused beast, and economics is an outgrowth of societies, rather than a conventional science searching for truth. Macquarie Wealth said the amount of government assistance was growing at exceptionally rapid pace as credit markets froze, companies stared into oblivion, and as workers were laid off and would, like, and would likely exceed the US $1.7 trillion spend in the first round of the GFC. While proposing bailout of vulnerable industries, e.g. airlines, is in line with strategies in 2009, today there is far the greater emphasis on income, including direct disimbursement to citizens, the analysis said. The key is that COVID-19 seems successfully, break, successfully breaking the irrational taboo against borrowing and preoccupation with debt sustainability. It is also forcing a closer cooperation between fiscal and monetary arms that over time will fuse into one, a la China. New world of nationalised capital and MMT is beckoning. It will bring different investment styles, although the twilight between the two systems will persist for years. Now, of course, many of us will, you know, raise our arms and go, well, that's not communism at all it's talking about. But I think, you know, it's talking about really just some form of, uh, you know, increased state intervention, both in the management of capital, but also in the organisation of incomes and incomes beyond being dependent on wage labour. But I think what is so interesting about this is two points. One, that it identifies that over-accumulation is the problem, that there is just too much capital out there to be effectively invested in a way that realises profit, right? So this is key not just to Marx's theory of crisis, but I think if you read Rosa Luxemburg's Accumulation of Capital, that this is actually a, an analysis that has been developed since the origin of capitalism. So people like Sismondi saying that one of the unique features of capitalism is that economic crisis is caused not by an, an, just an absence of wealth, but by a surplus of capital. That when there is too much capital to be effectively invested and to realise a profit, that the system goes into seizure and that causes crisis. That poverty is a production of wealth, right? And that is effectively what the Macquarie Bank is saying. That because of, you know, the growth of... Um, of debt, the supply of money out there isn't itself, you know, well, maybe not because, but rather this is evidence of overaccumulation. And as we talked about in, in last week, in the previous episode, the shift towards finan financialization itself is a response to the crisis of the 70s. But also this indication of a subjective change amongst youth, that there is a desire for, what's, what's the quote? I think I really want to go back to this. Fairness and support rather than freedom and choice. That a transformation has happened, this means that policies that might be to the free market minds rational cannot be imposed. That's really fascinating. And you know, I'll, hopefully one of the things that I will look at um, in a future episode is a, re a report that has been put out by some you know, centrist state-supported think tank about the wave of protests around the world that you know, we might not be feeling in Australia, but perhaps things are more positive on our side. A final note would be its commentary about the um, contingent and socially specific nature of economic theory, which would be a surprise um, to many of us that have had any encounter with neoclassical economics over the last 20 to 30 years, that its entire approach has been that economics is a natural law. You know, there's apparently a, a joke about someone or someone at one of the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank or the IMF or something like that, you know, suggesting if they should take a different approach with a, a particular nation state that seemed to be to be um, dealing dealing with things badly. And, you know, basically the other economists in the room joke saying, well, why would you do it differently? Do you think this country has a different form of physics? You know, so this is actually an incredible break that here we have someone at the centre of capital saying that the problem is over accumulation and, and uh, neoclassical ideas are no longer applicable. That's amazing. I want to point out here um, 
that this is more radical than the kind of Keynesian voices on on the left, right? That locate um, the problem as as one of being, um, you know, over oh, under accumulation. That all all we need to do is get like a, a jobs guarantee or the like, push up aggregate effective demand, um, and and that will be that'll be fine, you know. Um, a very generous supporter of the show uh, Eleanor Robinson you know we were talking about this on Twitter and made some comment along the lines some you know pithy tweet about that for the actual you know capitalists the kind of liberal panaceas about increased effective demand you know aren't good enough right so here we've got a more radical understanding than those people that just say okay let's let's pump you know raise up aggregate effective demand so one of the developments that has happened this week has been extraordinary action by the Reserve Bank of Australia. I've had a bit of a look, read the speech. So what, what is the Reserve Bank of Australia actually doing? There's a couple of things they've already been engaged in. One is um, that they've been engaged in uh, what is called repo operations, which are part of the element of the financial markets. I find this relatively confusing. So my understanding of it is basically... Um, the Reserve Bank agrees to um, sell kind of, uh, sell government bonds to an investor. In this case, it would be a bank, and then buy them back the next day at a pre-agreed um, higher price. So, effectively, what it is is the Reserve Bank sits in, sets into the market and goes, "Here, buy this, pay this amount X, and tomorrow I will buy that off you at X plus one." Right, and the reason that they want to do this um, is to pump more capital into the banks to encourage lending. Now, if I've got that wrong, if you're an economist at the Reserve Bank and you're like, that is A, not how it works, or B, you've got to explain that in more detail, please get in contact and we can do an interview and you can explain repo operations to all our listeners. But that is my understanding that they sell a, it's selling of a government security to investors on an overnight basis, then buying them back um, at a slightly higher price the next day. Also, what the Reserve Bank is, is currently doing is buying Australian uh, government bonds in the secondary market. So they're stepping into the market that trades in basically Australian debt and buying those assets. Why are they doing it? Again, it's to inject more money into the financial markets to go uh, to, to put more cash in people's hands, but also to get the market to say, well, this is something worth having. We should be buying and selling these things. But also what's mentioned as well is the key role that state bonds play as a pricing mechanism in financial markets. And I think this is something really interesting and I've only stumbled across a couple of times. So apparently under the Howard government in the late 90s, uh, there was an opportunity that the Australian state could actually pay off all Australian government debt. And Peter Costello was given advice from people in the financial sector saying, well, you can't actually pay off, you know, uh, don't pay off all the debt because we need Australian state bonds as a pricing mechanism. Like, how do we work out what things are worth? Well, things like, like state bonds play a really crucial role in setting that price. So this is, a, this is an intervention there too. So two things the Reserve Bank are already doing in terms of buying and selling bonds to keep money in the financial markets and also to, to keep um, aim for bonds at, at a certain prices, a pricing, pricing mechanism right across the board. Because what's the danger, right? Like, what are they kind of responding to? That in all this financial instability, right, that people will pull capital into what they think are safe resources. Maybe they'll hold cash. Maybe they'll um, buy gold. Maybe they'll just look for certain levels of certain bonds. And this will freeze up um, what's going on in financial markets, stopping people, A, being able to borrow to do other economic activity, but also remember how we've talked about how important capital gains are, the, the uh, incomes from buying and selling financial investments are to the rest of the economy on the whole, what Marazzi calls, um, you know, what Marazzi says that, you know, finance is co-substantial with production, right? No one, no one makes something without borrowing. No one buys without borrowing. So it's important to keep this whole machinery going. They've also announced um, three further moves. So they've just, uh, so every um, period, you know, periodically, is it monthly? Is it monthly? Or is it bi-monthly? I've suddenly forgotten. 
I think it's bi-monthly. Uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia gets together, and, and which by that I mean every two months, not twice a month. Again, jump on and correct me where I'm wrong here. The Reserve Bank of Australia gets together and sets interest rates. What does it mean by setting interest rates, right? Well, basically, um, all um, authorised deposit institutions, ADIs, I think that's what it stands for. So big banks, they have... They, they keep their deposits with the Reserve Bank, you know, at least nominally. And every day they lend out money to people, but they have to have a certain proportion of actual reserves um, to back up the money that they've lent out. So they go to another bank and they borrow money off another bank. And what the Reserve Bank does is try to set the interest rate that banks lend to each other. And by doing that, set the interest rate that the banks then lend to to customers, whether that's households or investors. So when they, the, the Reserve Bank gets together every, I think it's every two months, and it sets that rate, right, what they call the cash rate. And so, but it met, even after setting the cash rate, it met again, and it has reduced the cash rate to 0.25%. So I think that's a historic low. So it's effectively cost nothing to, to borrow money. So the idea, again, to, to, to encourage banks as much as possible to lend money out, with the estate then making the argument, trying to conjure, you know, to organise banks together and say, make sure you pass on this interest rate cut. The idea being if money's cheap to borrow, then people will invest and, and spend more. Now, interesting, the other thing that they're doing is a tar they're targeting the yield on a three-year Australian government bonds. So the Reserve Bank's going to go into the market, as it said before, and it's going to buy and sell bonds, aiming to mean that the return that you get from a bond as an average over three years. So it's really saying like, well, for the next three years, we're going to intervene into the financial markets by buying and selling Australian bonds, effectively saying that the investment that you would get from buying Australian bonds, from putting your money in Australian bonds, would not be that much greater, um, would be about the same, right, than the interest you can charge by lending the money out. So really trying to, on this level, it, I guess it's doing two things. By buying bonds, it's quantitative easing, right? By buying bonds, it's us, it's buying bonds off, off banks and the like, and it's giving them money, saying, well, buy this, you, you go out there and you spend, you go out there and you spend. But it's also trying to act as a disincentive from investors holding money in um in bonds or buying bonds um, to hold money in them because the return that they'll get on their investment won't be rather that much greater than the standard interest rates of just lending money to for people to carry out things to do. So that's really interesting. It's an attempt to lower uh, borrowing costs by you know incentivizing people to 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 lend money rather than to put it into Australian bonds. Monday the 23rd now I recorded that podcast on Friday the 20th and when I was editing it over the weekend I realized that I would like to kind of I've made a couple of errors here and I'd like to kind of explain things in a little bit more detail so uh, the first point being which I didn't identify was actually what the target was that the Reserve Bank was aiming for so their target for the yield on Australian government bonds is 0.25% so it's exactly the same what the interest rate is and that's as a, a kind of overall average um, over that three-year period I guess it's it's important to maybe think about what that actually kind of means concretely so if the way to think about it is you know say a government wants to borrow some money they might issue a bond and you know it'll have um we say $100 at a certain rate of interest. So, you know, at the end of the period of time, they're going to pay you $110, right? But if you buy that interest rate, if you someone then sells that bond and they you buy it at a cheaper rate, you buy it at $900, obviously your return is going to be greater. But if you buy it, if it's more expensive, then your return is going to be less as a percentage, uh, you know, of, of what you've spent. So what they're trying to do here, I guess, is to buy and sell bonds with an aim of keeping the return that you'd get from that to be consistent with what the general level of interest is. And as I did say, you know, the kind of purpose to do this, I think, is to stop people with all this money being thrown into in, into finance capital, uh, stop them from just going, all right, the world out there looks shit. I'm just going to put it into bonds because uh, that's a, not very risky and that return is, is pretty good. 
but rather to say, well, there's no real difference in the return from what I'd get as lending it out to someone in the rest of the economy. One thing I haven't really talked about a lot about is how we need to understand, I guess, financial investment as a kind of speculation on the future, you know, whatever kind of business it is, whether you're uh, lending money or you're buying stocks or whatever, you say, okay, reading things at the moment, I imagine that this economic activity is going to produce some kind of return that makes it worthwhile for me to throw my capital this way. So that's what it's responding to, and um, that's effectively what it's doing. So I just wanted to add that little extra detail to be a little bit more accurate. And they're also setting up a short-term fund facility for the banking system with support for business credit, especially to small and medium-sized businesses. So banks will be able to access another $90 billion until September. And the line is, direct quote, can borrow at equivalent of 3% to their, out, to their existing outstanding credit, right? So this seems to be, say the, the more you can lend, the more you lend, the cheaper you can borrow. And also lenders will be able to borrow additional funds from the Reserve Bank if they increase credit to business this year. For every extra dollar lent to large businesses, lenders will have access to an additional dollar of funding from the Reserve Bank. For every extra dollar of loans to small and medium-sized businesses, they'll have access to additional $5. So this is really extraordinary activity that the Reserve Bank is, is taking um, to, get, to make money cheap to uh, incentivise borrowing. I think it's probably uh, worth at some point to have a conversation about um, like what this means about money and the role that money plays in the capitalist economy and how money is changing. Is, again, referencing the work of Christian Marazzi, is when he talks about the linguistic nature of money. And what he means by this is that since financial markets have this kind of rationality where everyone behaves based on what they think others will behave and what others think that others think that others think will behave, kind of ad infinitum, is that statements made by central authorities have an impact on shaping that rationale. And I think we'll see well, that thesis is going to be tested in practice. So by the Reserve Bank saying we are going to do this, that has an impact just as much as they do something. Because just as much as they're, they're putting money into, into banks to loan, putting money into the financial markets, trying to um, keep the financial markets moving and also trying to keep banks lending, the players in those markets will act both from those results but also from, the from their perception of the perception of the statement of what they're going to do. Will it work? I think that's really unclear. Um, as we know, and I've talked about before, like my, well, look, my thesis is that obviously that this kind of action is at best a delaying action. And the thoughts of the Reserve Bank kind of say this themselves. They, they say we're building a bridge, right? That COVID-19 will end at some point. And when that ends, we want all the pieces on the board to still be on the board. And there's a chance that just as the disaster of World War II, from its very disruption and violence and destruction, cleared out so much wealth, it lay the basis for a boom that COVID-19, after COVID-19, might do the same, right? You know, it's quite interesting that so many revolutionaries in World War II imagined at the end of World War II that what you would see is a return to depression conditions. And that's not what they saw, right? Because, you know, what and we can t it'd be interesting to think about that in more detail. And it says something about state capacity too. You know, going back to my original point that states act in, in different ways. Like the capacity of states to act, I think, is, is what we're really seeing is historically determined, right? Like different states have different abilities. And, you know, coming out of World War II, the United States state had certain abilities to act. But I think that's also like um, 
I'm going, I'm going to go off tangent here. I, ho- I hope you enjoy it. But it's not just about state capacities. Like the thing that I think really also what we're experiencing is we're experiencing the historical impact of our own historical defeats, right? So if we're talking about the hospital system in countries in the global north were already stretched and, you know, cannot deal with COVID-19 and that's going to increase the amount of people who die, right? And every single one of those deaths is a horrific tragedy, is the end of a world for an individual and a whole range of people, right? Is that inescapable tragedy that we all face. It, it's very, like the first analysis that you, you get is like, okay, so this is neoliberalism. Neoliberalism has done this. But I think actually what the most important lesson is not to say neoliberalism has done this, is that we didn't stop it. That during the transformation from Fordism to post-Fordism, from social democracy to neoliberalism, and to, if you want to use those terms, and let's just use those terms now, it's not just that capital did this, that the thinkers in the state did this, but we, there was not, and who's the we? Okay, fair enough. The left, the class, however you want to define it, let's have that argument. But it wasn't stopped. That the cuts weren't stopped. The other funding man- modes weren't developed. That mass collective power wasn't generated, right? So what comes next? So the Reserve Bank are doing this to kind of keep everything on the boil, to keep the anti-gravitational forces saying, well, when we come out of this, you know, what will, this will keep capitalism surviving. Will there be a boom? Will it hang on? Will it, will it stagger along? We have to be asking ourselves the same question about what comes out of this. Because, you know, the thing that's so interesting about the Macquarie Wealth article, it's basically, it's capitalism is, trans, is moving to communism just by itself, except if you, fun, you, you focus on that point about there has been a subjective change you know like to quote Mao you know you can't get well paraphrase because I'm not going to get it right you can't get communism with no communist movement you know I don't think you can expect capitalism to move to its replacement through its own toxicities without seeing a class movement that shapes it right you know like if we go back to Marx, it's, you know, what, what, what comes out uh, of crisis? Well, it's either communism or the, um, or, you know, mutual ruin of the contending classes. But how do you have politics when there's no public sphere? How do we have an influence now, right? Now on, on how we experience this disaster, but also on the way that we go out. When the factories turn down, when the pollution stops, when so many of our jobs, and some of our jobs won't be able to stop, you know, people shipping in food, people picking food, you know, people working in shops, in the hospitals, all those people that do the work of making and distributing use values and caring for us and keeping us alive, that will have to continue, right? How is that going to continue? You know, how do we shift? from cars to making ventilators, all that kind of stuff, you know, that, you know. But when all the other stuff gets shut off, who gets to say what gets turned back on? How do we organise afterwards? If it's clear that it can't be the same, that we cannot have capitalism in a similar way, what is determined next? How do you do politics with no public sphere? The immediate step seems to be the mutual aid. And that's certainly where I'm putting a lot of eggs in my basket at the moment are in terms of community group and, and, and mutual aid. But that's some of the conversations that I want to proceed from there. So, look, I hopefully you've enjoyed that partly as some overall comments and then secondly as a little bit of a reading thing and a little bit of an analysis. I, I would encourage your feedback, um, particularly negative, even if it does make me a little bit upset. I really want this to be useful rather than self-indulgent. Um, you can find me on Twitter, at with sober senses. This is Dave, living the dream. I uh, hope everyone's uh, looking after themselves. Between the time that I have recorded, uh, that I recorded the original podcast, and now that I'm editing it, a number of important developments have taken place. So on Sunday, the federal government announced um, further a second stimulus package. Now this stimulus package is quite different. I guess this stimulus package is, in many ways, directly aimed at uh, increasing aggregate effective demand. So one of the most interesting things about it is that it's going to—it's an effective doubling of income support for those who are on the job seeker payment. So the payment formerly known as New Start will be supplemented with an additional $550 per fortnight, bringing it to a total of $1,100 per fortnight. This will also apply to, for example, sole traders who have found their work has dried up due to 
under COVID-19, the asset test and the waiting period have been abolished, the income test still applies. So a further $750 payment on top of the first one, you're saying the first stimulus, for those on income support who are not eligible for the above increase in payment. So for example, this would be people on the aged care pension, on the carer's allowance, I assume more so um, if you get a family tax benefit or something like that. And this will go to about 5 million people. There's the ability to withdraw super for those who are facing COVID-19 led financial hardship. So the, the $10,000 this financial year, $10,000 next financial year, and the minimum superannuation drawdown requirement for retirees will be cut by 50% for the next two financial years and deeming rates will be re reduced in line with reserve bank cuts. So there's a cash payment for small to medium businesses. This is a large part of this package. All employing small businesses will receive at least $20,000 and larger businesses will receive up to $100,000. More money into the financial system, in addition to an injection of $105 billion with the intention of increasing the availability of credit, the government will, will would guarantee in a 50-50 partnership more lending to small to medium businesses. So the same way that many people are dependent on their parents to be guaranteed on a loan for a house, now the government will do that for your business. Uh, this would include loans of up to $250,000 over three years with no payments required for six months and increased flexibility uh, in insolvency and bankruptcy law. So the first stimulus package, the RBA uh, activity, and this stimulus package comes to approximately about $190 billion. That's 10% of Australia's GDP. Okay, so I guess there's the debate about the effectiveness of it, but also say we get out of the COVID-19 crisis. There's a debate, I think, what stays and who pays? So will these welfare increasing in welfare payments be removed? I assume that's the government's intention. Obviously, there's a fight there to be had uh, because what will there be conditions like when we, when we come out of this? And it's quite clear, you know, that the obsession with debts and deficit is over. Um, Alan Kohler and The Australian Today is talking about we're now in a world of MMT. But, you know, I'm not a convinced MMT theorist, so I don't think the situation will be that states will just look at this huge amount of debt they're going to accumulate through this period and six months say it's over and six months say it's over in a year, just let that debt hang, right? There'll be new lines of, of, of contestation and new lines of fight about that. So... Interesting stuff. Uh, again, the theme of the show is how do we act? How do we prepare? I hope you found this useful. I'm Dave and this is at, oh, I'm Dave. This is Living the Dream and you can follow me at With Sober Senses. from my family or is it just harder to breathe these days